Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm glad you've joined us today. Today's going to be a pretty deep theological discussion on the subjects of Calvinism and and then part two which will come later, will be on limited atonement. We're going to be talking with Dr. David L. Allen, who now serves at Mid-America Seminary as the dean of um, Adrian Rogers Center for Preaching and Distinguished Professor of Preaching. I heard Dr. Allen uh, speak at our conference recently. He's so articulate, so clear, easy to understand, great preacher. He also has a ministry coaching preachers, which he'll mention at some point, and you can see in the resources in the introductory text to the podcast. But he's a delightful person, personality, and delightful to talk to, and he's done his homework, especially on the subject of Calvinism and and then more especially on the subject of limited atonement, which he calls the Achilles heel of Calvinism. So we're really happy to have him in this discussion. It can get kind of heavy for you at some point, but to hang in there. He makes some really great points that will help us understand Calvinism and its implications. So, let's get going. Well, we have with us today uh, to discuss some theology, Dr. David Allen, and uh, you heard his uh, little bit about his background already. And he is a very clear spokesman for, I think, what's uh, very important to our hearts, and that is the gospel. Now, I'm going to address him as David, we agreed, and he's going to address me as Charlie uh, rather than Dr. David and Dr. Charlie, because then we would have a terrible paradox. (laughs) See what I did there? Was it worth it? it? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, this is going to be kind of a theological discussion um, I heard Dr. Allen, uh, David, <laughs> speak at the Free Grace Alliance Conference recently on uh, the issue of limited atonement. And, um, of course, we're interested in a very clear gospel of grace, which by which we mean we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, the issue of limited atonement comes up, but the broader issue of Calvinism seems to muddy the gospel water. And, uh, David, you've done a lot of writing and speaking on this issue of Calvinism and the limited atonement, but let's talk about Calvinism first in general. Uh, But, well, even before I do that, though, uh, besides your professional background, uh, tell us a little bit about your family and how how you became a Christian. Well, first, thank you for allowing me to be with you, Charlie. I appreciate this opportunity to share with you and your audience as well. Uh, I became a Christian when I was nine years old. I grew up in a Christian home, was grateful and thankful to the Lord for that. Had a wonderful uh, church home where the pastor preached faithfully the word of God and the gospel. And I came to know Christ when I was nine years of age. And uh, then God called me to preach when I was 16. And I was a junior in high school and began preaching youth revivals, even then, weekend youth revivals over in Floyd County, Georgia. And uh, before I moved to Texas to go to college way back 
1975. And uh, so that's just a bit of, of my background there. Well, you're a well-seasoned preacher then. Uh, we were yeah. drive at age 16. <laughs> learning the only speaking we did was arguing our way out of traffic tickets. But Well, um, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and how about your family? Well, I married to Kate. Uh, my wife, Kate, is a financial advisor with Edward Jones, and God has been good to us. We've been married uh, six years. My first wife died of cancer several years back, mm. and she and I have four children. I have four grown children. I have eight grandchildren, mm -hmm. and so the Lord has blessed me in that way. They all live uh, in the Dallas area, in fact, so I'm grateful for that. But the Lord has blessed me with Kate, and she and I have been married six years, and, and God has just been so good to both of us, certainly to me, and giving and giving her to me. We've got a wonderful marriage, and we're a ministry team. We function together as a team. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful, and I'm sorry to hear about your wife. I imagine the suffering that you went through has something to do with you writing a commentary on the book of Job, that's my guess. Well, certainly what I went through with the death of Sherry, my first wife, uh, battling cancer for three years and nine months and about 50 chemo treatments, about three surgeries. Mm. Uh, I saw her fight that battle and I came to understand uh, the word suffering in a personal way, right. uh, in a very real way. And uh, God taught me many lessons about himself during that time, including 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that, uh, where the scripture says, God said to Paul, my grace mm -hmm. is sufficient for you. That became my verse and my wife's verse during that time. And yes, uh, much of that experience helped me uh, in writing the little commentary on Job, which was just published, in fact, last April just came out and so far has been very popular and grateful for that. And it's a, it's not a technical commentary by any means. It's a preacher's commentary, mm -hmm. but it's a good survey overview of uh, the book of Job in commentary fashion. I almost call it a sermon Terry because yeah. there it's written in such a way uh, as, as I would preach some parts of the book of Job, including illustrations, but it is a commentary uh, mm -hmm. just non-technical. Well, those kind of uh, uh, sermonic books are very important to us who are trying to preach the truth. They give us ideas and we steal yes. your illustrations, too. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's why they're there. I put them in there to be, to be used. So that's a book I'm definitely going to get. Um, and I think I think people will be interested in that. Let's talk about Calvinism in general, because you've done a lot of work in that area. But before we do that, we probably should define our terms. What is a Calvinist in your opinion or definition? Well, you know, oddly enough, people are oftentimes confused about that. Uh, and the reason for that confusion is the traditional acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And there are so many uh, false ideas about the concept of TULIP. The first is a historical error. Many people believe that TULIP originated at the Council of Dort in 1618 and 19. That's actually false. Many people are shocked to learn that the TULIP acrostic 
uh, for defining, loosely defining Calvinism from a soteriological standpoint, actually did not originate until the early 20th century. Hmm. You will not find Tulip as an acrostic used prior to that time. It was never used at Dort. Now, these five theological concepts that are described in the tulip acrostic were certainly discussed at Dort. Uh, but Dort did not originate the tulip acrostic. That's basically a newer uh, approach to it. But basically, a Calvinist is someone who affirms uh, four major things. Now, <clears throat> you have to remember there's a difference between Reformed being reformed and being a Calvinist. All people who are reformed are Calvinists. Not all Calvinists are reformed. Reformed is a denominational label as well as a theological label. So that, for example, in my tradition, which is Southern Baptist, you have Southern Baptists who are Calvinists, but none are reformed because reformed theology by definition, entails uh, infant or in, entails infant baptism, and in, it entails a form of church government along the lines of Presbyterianism, an elder, uh, a, a kind of elder rule form of church governance, along with other issues. But those are two biggies. Well, all Baptists reject both of those. But are, <laughs> uh, are reformed all five point Calvinists? I know they are not, uh, although probably majority would be. So we need to distinguish the words Reformed and then Calvinist. A Calvinist is anybody of any uh, denomination who self-identifies with the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, as expressed and what is known as Calvinism. Now, and I'm going to nuance that again in a moment, but there are there are essentially four things that are true of all Calvinists. Okay. Number one, all Calvinists reject libertarian free will. Right. That's the there. This is where people get confused of what what does it mean to be a Calvinist? Because there are nuances and differences among Calvinists, which I'll point out in a moment. But there are four things that all Calvinists agree on, and here they are. Number one, a commitment to determinism usually in the form of compatibilism, with a rejection of libertarian freedom. No Calvinist affirms libertarian freedom. They all have that in common. Number two, all Calvinists affirm unconditional election. There is no variation. All Calvinists affirm unconditional election. But that doesn't necessarily double predestination, does it? Not necessarily, correct. Uh, Because there are Calvinists who affirm double predestination and there are Calvinists who do not. But all of those that I just mentioned affirm unconditional election. Number three is irresistible grace. All Calvinists affirm the I in the tulip acrostic, the irresistible grace end of it, that uh, God effectually gives, grants the gift of faith to those who are his elect, and then they according to Calvinists, voluntarily believe in Christ, uh, and thus irresistible grace is a non-negotiable for Calvinists. And then finally, number four, all Calvinists affirm uh, a form of what they call perseverance of the saints. Here you have to distinguish between that term and eternal security. Really what all Calvinists affirm is eternal security, because they actually have some slight variations 
on the issue of perseverance of the saints. But if you understand the P of TULIP to mean eternal security, then all Calvinists affirm that if a person is truly saved in terms of God's knowledge of their salvation, God knows from an ontological standpoint they're saved, then all Calvinists affirm the eternal security of that believer. That believer will never be lost. Now, now those four non-negotiables. Yeah, right I've heard there. the last one put this way, that uh, all <clears throat> Calvinists believe in eternal security, or that all the elect are eternally secure, but they don't know who the elect are until they persevere to right. That is correct. That's exactly right. That is the position of Calvinism. Uh, and uh, But the, all of the elect will persevere, hence their understanding of what we call, what we would call, what we would call eternal security of the believer. All Calvinism, those four items that I just outlined are affirmed by all Calvinists. Now, there are some things where Calvinists debate. The biggest issue they debate is the issue of the extent of the atonement. Right. It's surprising to many people to discover that not all Calvinists affirm limited atonement. Many, both historically and modern day, reject the concept of limited atonement. Also, not all Calvinists believe that total depravity entails uh, personal guilt, Adam's guilt. Mm -hmm. And that's debated among the Reformed. Yeah. And so that you can't use that as a measuring stick, nor so we, can you use the extent of the atonement as a measuring stick. Well, I, I noticed you left the L out of the tulip, so we'll discuss that later. But it seems to be quite a slippery term. So for the sake of conversation, uh, I've heard you refer to maybe the five-point Calvinists as high Calvinists. Or yes. The ones that believe in limited atonement, at least. Correct. Yes. All right. Here's the historical breakdown. If you go back in church history and re and look at Reformed theology from the time of the Reformation with uh, John Calvin and his contemporaries forward, uh, you will discover that the term high Calvinist is a term that is used to describe what we call five point Calvinist. Mm -hmm. A high Calvinist is a Calvinist who affirms limited atonement, okay. along with the other letters of Tulip. A moderate Calvinist is a historical term that is used to refer to what many people commonly today call a four-point Calvinist. Okay. Uh, and so this is a Calvinist who believes in all of the other aspects of Calvinism, but rejects limited atonement. Okay, now when you say the four-point Calvinist is a historical term, you mean there are people who have agreed that there is that category at some point? Yes, actually, four, yeah, let me be clear. Four-point Calvinism is not a historical term. Okay. That's a modern term that is used to des describe what historically was referred to as a moderate Calvinist. Okay. You'll read in Reformed literature 100, 200, 300 years ago references to high Calvinist and moderate Calvinist. A moderate Calvinist, by definition, is what you and I would call today a four-point Calvinist. Right. Uh, and actually, as I as I demonstrate in my works, particularly my book, The Extent of the Atonement, the original position of the Reform was uh 
holding, they did hold originally to the position of unlimited atonement. Limited atonement is the new kid on the block for Calvinism. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, the earliest Calvinist, John Calvin, Bullinger, Bootser, you name all the Calvinists uh, in the, all the reformed in the first generation, they all held to unlimited atonement. Yeah, I know there's a discussion about uh, well, how yeah. Calvinistic was John Calvin, and they argue both, exactly. both ways with him. But yeah. it seems, it seems I like it's by inference. It's by inference that they make him a limited atonement uh, believer. It is by inference because if you carefully study his writings, uh, there are dozens of places where Calvin himself affirms the atonement is unlimited. Uh, for example, Calvin doesn't just say Jesus died for all or all people, which some Calvinists want to try to nuance that, all kinds of people. And that in itself is a hermeneutical problem on their part. Mm. But Calvin actually says Jesus died for all humanity. Mm -hmm. Jesus died for those that are reprobate. Calvin's sermons on Isaiah 53, John 3.16, and other places make it actually crystal clear that in terms of the extent of the atonement, Jesus actually died for the sins of all people. There's no question in my mind, nor can that really be debated anymore uh, like it used to be debated 40 years ago. Um, modern scholarship has demonstrated, I think, clearly that Calvin held to unlimited atonement. Now, he was a good Calvinist. He held to unconditional election and that the atonement would only be applied to the elect. And, so the atonement is still particular in that sense, particular redemption, mm -hmm. but it is an unlimited propitiation for the sins of all people. That is the traditional moderate Calvinist position, otherwise called, historically called, hypothetical universalism. But modern day terminology is uh, four-point Calvinism. Okay. Now, I think there's a good chapter defending uh, Calvin's view of the atonement in uh, Whosoever Will. Um, I forget who wrote the yes. chapter, but but he made a good argument that Calvin was not did not hold to limited atonement. I thought, yes, right after, right after that chapter, that chapter was written by Kevin Kennedy, who did his PhD dissertation on that subject oh. at Southern Southern Seminary. I might add, oh, and Kennedy would identify himself as a moderate Calvinist. But he, I think he's demonstrated, I've demonstrated in my chapter, uh, Paul Hartog's latest book on Calvin's view of the extent of the atonement. That's a new book that's just come out. Uh, all demonstrate that Calvin himself held to an unlimited atonement. In fact, you won't find, you'll, you won't find Calvinists today. I don't find them today arguing that Calvin held to limited atonement. You'll find those who will say, well, we can't really tell. It's mm -hmm. ambiguous. But you're not going to find Calvinistic scholars today. Very few would you find who would argue forcefully, oh, yes, Calvin clearly held to an unlimited atonement. Nope, they're not going to do that because they know the evidence is too strong to make that that dogmatic statement. Well, that's interesting. I don't engage the Calvinists on the academic level as you do, so I don't I, I'm not updated on their arguments. But uh, that's very interesting to hear that. So the. Uh, academic world seems to be more 
leaning towards the fact that John Calvin was did not believe in limited atonement. That's good to hear. That's the way it seems to me. Uh, there are two primary views. There are three views on that. The, the minority view today is that Calvin held a limited atonement. Hmm. Then there's a large view among the reform that's agnostic. Well, we can't tell. You know, he doesn't say. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a growing number of scholars, both in the Reformed tradition and the non-Reformed tradition, uh, which is where I would be in the non-Reformed group, that are demonstrating from their studies that Calvin actually did hold to and affirm an unlimited atonement. Okay. Um, well, that's that's good. That's interesting. Uh, you know, one thing that concerns us, uh, you know, I'm identified as being in the free grace movement, part of that, uh, which our concern is a clear gospel. Uh, and of course, Calvinism seems to muddy that water quite a bit. Uh, and we're looking, we're standing back and looking at this big surge in Calvinism, which, you know, when I was in Bible college back in the 80s, it was just like one or two guys and we would all argue them and and. I know there were schools probably more dedicated to it, but it really wasn't a big controversy then. And all of a sudden, this young restless reform movement comes along. How do you explain that surge in Calvinism uh, that happened uh, decades ago? Well, I think there are a combination of factors that created the perfect storm there. Uh, first is the rise of popular preachers. Uh, who are high Calvinists, i.e. five-point Calvinists. Uh, John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, uh, just to name a few. And then in the Southern Baptist world, Al Mohler. Uh, in the Nine Marks world, Mark Dever. Um, so these and others like them who became very popular uh, speakers and writers uh, over the last uh, 30 years are all affirming not only Calvinism, but a form of high Cal. All of those men are high Calvinists. They're right. all men who affirm a limited atonement. Okay. And and they're they're very erudite and they're very professional and they're very scholarly very in their presentations. And they have influenced a large number of students and and uh, younger young pastors through uh, their writings and their preaching, and their teaching. In addition to that, you have a, a number of organizations that have developed the Passion Movement, which started with college students, students and college students, uh, you know, when was that, maybe 30 years ago or whenever that began, uh, coupled with the rise of Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition, uh, and Nine Marks. All of these movements are led by uh, men who are high Calvinists. Yeah. Now there are people in those movements who are moderate Calvinists, but the gatekeepers of Calvinism today are all five pointers. If you look at who the gatekeepers are, uh, they're all five pointers. And that it, does has, seem, it doesn't has seem to you like the publishing houses too are controlled by the Calvinists. So it's very difficult to get material out that is not in line with their views. Have you seen well, that? Well, that, that is true. The many now the publishing houses are very big, on publishing reformed literature and particularly Calvinistic literature. Uh, and, uh, you know, for example, Crossway is a wonderful uh, publisher, but they do pr publish predominantly reformed Calvinistic uh, literature. 
Uh, and uh, the, so the publishing companies, Calvin is right. Many of these leading Calvinist leaders are people who actually write. They write books. They right. write some of them, write lots of them. Yeah. And yeah. And so the rest of us who are not Calvinist, some of us have not not written uh, as much. Now, you're an exception and I'm an exception to that. You've written a number of things. I've written a number of things as well. Uh, not only in the field of Calvinism, but the field of New Testament studies and uh, field of preaching. But uh, I've got right now actually just shy of uh, 4,000 pages of actually published scholarly material in about 13 books and a number of journal articles. But but I'm there aren't many. Uh, there are a few. I don't mean to try to make you think I'm the only guy out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are, there are others. Uh, ben Witherington is a strong non-Calvinist who is a prolific writer who's actually written more than most of the Calvinist authors have, but he's written more in the field of New Testament and uh, that kind of thing and less in the field of theology directed toward Calvinism. I'm one of the few people that's written specifically uh, three or four books critiquing Calvinism, Uh, but but most of the non-Calvinist guys don't do that. Some do, but most don't. Yeah. That's another reason for the shift. There is another reason, one other reason, I think. In some of evangelicalism, not all, but some of evangelicalism from the non-Calvinist side of evangelicalism, the last uh, 30 or 40 years, there has been, again, I, I, em- I emphasize the word some, mm-hmm. there has been a shallowness to our preaching. Uh, preaching has been shallow. Uh, these little five ways to be happy and three ways to love your mother and seven ways to mow your lawn sermons are pri- primarily coming from non-Calvinists. Well, the Calvinist guys are preaching substance hmm. and doctrine. And so young students listen to both of that and they say, wow, uh, I'm with the Calvinist over here. I, I, you know, so that is an influence to them as well. What do you think is the appeal uh, besides the teaching to uh, so many college students were coming in uh, to the movement uh, and calling themselves Calvinists? Do you think they really understood the Calvinistic system? I'm using the word Calvinist in the sense of five point uh, high Calvinist. Do you think they really understood what they're buying into or did they just uh, get attracted I'd... to a conference <laughs> and hear a good preacher and hear some entertainers and say, man, this is for me? Yeah, I think that's what's happening predominantly. I've talked to many of these students through the years in my career as a uh, academician and professor, and even as a pastor. Hmm. And uh, I can tell you that when you engage them, they have a very shallow understanding of Calvinism. And I've had people tell me, I've had students say, well, uh, you know, I just, uh, I believe in Calvinism because John Piper does. Yeah. Or I believe in Calvinism because Al Mohler does, and these are my heroes. These are the people I read and I listen to. But when you engage them on the de- the issues theologically, they're very shallow. They don't really have. So- now, I'm being general here. Yeah. M- many don't. There are some who do, mm-hmm. but there are a number of Calvinists who really don't understand the system nor the entailments of the system. And when you present the counter argument, as I did, I had a student sit in my office a few years ago and he said, uh, Dr. Allen, I believe in limited atonement. And I said, why? 
you know, where in the New Testament is limited atonement taught? He could give me no scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I laid out 10 scriptures that teach unlimited atonement. And then I asked him, are you now prepared to believe in unlimited atonement? No, he said. <laughs> and I said, why, why not? And he said, because I believe John Piper and he named two or three names. I believe they're correct. Yeah. Even when he admits there are no scriptures that teach limited atonement. And when he admitted the scriptures I showed him teach unlimited atonement, you know, he I actually think- said, you know, that, and yet, and yet, he remains persuaded because he's not going to break ranks with Piper or MacArthur or whatever. Now, that's pathetic, really, when yeah. you think about it. And there's actually, you know, there's people like that on our side of the argument too. Probably they'll probably they'll, probably yeah. so. I, well, well, I know there are actually, and yeah. uh, and they haven't studied the things out and, and come to convictions, but it, right. It, I've always suspected that a lot of these young Calvinists really don't understand what they're buying into. And that's why I wrote a little booklet called, are you a Calvinist? And I go through the tulips that you really believe this, but I think the appeal of a tight system appeals to them. I remember talking yep. to one myself, he was going to a Calvinist. He switched to a Calvinistic seminar. I said, I said, why are you a Calvinist? He said, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I said, well, I do too. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he really couldn't explain much beyond that. Uh, their emphasis on sovereignty. Right. Now you're absolutely right. This whole question of uh, the high Calvinism, a higher form of Calvinism, has really seemed to also consume the Southern Baptist um, group. I don't, I don't think you call yourself a denomination, the fellow Southern Baptist Fellowship, and uh, you taught at uh, Southwestern Seminary for quite a while, and we're, we're engaged in yes. probably a lot of dialogue with that. Um, and and I know that there was. <laughs> things greatly changed with Al Mohler becoming president. Was he really the spark plug for the Calvinistic shift that so many Southern Baptists have now adopted? Uh, I would, I would say, yes, he, that is a factor. The influence of Al Mohler in the Southern Baptist convention uh, on the subject of Calvinism cannot be underestimated. Uh, I think he is a force and a, a key influence when he became president of Southern Seminary, uh, what, 30 years ago, roughly, or whenever that occurred, um, uh, his influence from then forward uh, has been very strong, has a very strong impact on young theologues, young students going to seminaries. And and not only his, not only Southern, but early graduates there, and then some of those guys are out teaching in uh, the other Southern Baptist seminaries as well. And so they are disseminating a Calvinistic understanding of soteriology within a Baptist context. Uh, and so that has become very, very popular. It's that part of the issue, I'm, I should have mentioned this a moment ago, but one of those reasons is the popularity issue. It is popular. It's cool. It's cool to be a Calvinist. Yeah. And And it's uncool to be in the minority when you're a young student and the rest of the gang is Calvinistic. And then you're uh, somebody who believes like David Allen and you're kind of looked at as, uh, you know, you know, like you've got worms crawling out your ears. So uh, it's it, there's a certain pressure, a, a certain uh, coolness about it that creates a certain uh, peer pressure yeah. to move in that direction. 
Yeah, it was. It's cool to be a Calvinist, and it didn't used to be. That's that's the baffling. Yeah, thing. That's, that's the right. baffling thing to me. But Al Mohler is a very articulate fellow. I listen to his podcast on social issues. Very good thinker and speaker. Oh um, yeah, very good thinker. Absolutely, he's very good thinker. Very good on cultural issues. Yeah, well, uh, I view I view Al much as much stronger on cultural issues than I do in the theological world. I don't think Al. Uh, many people view him as a great theologian. I don't, he is a theologian uh, and he's sharp, don't get me wrong, but his forte is in the area of cultural engagement, cultural interpretation. Uh, he's one of the absolute best in the yeah. evangelical world in in that way. Yeah, that's why I enjoy listening to him on that, those things. Now, you wrote some books like um, On the Atonement. Uh, you contributed to Whosoever Will, which was uh, kind of an anti-Calvinistic uh, book. Um, and now you're contributing to a book, a new book on Calvinism. How are those being received and what's your feedback uh, from Southern Baptist or evangelicalism in general? Overall, overall, very good from the standpoint of evangelicalism in general, and particularly the non-Calvinistic branch of evangelicalism. The book, Whosoever Will, went through several printings it was published in 2010, and it sold out uh, uh, very quickly of its first publication, and they've had to reprint the book many times. I'm told by B&H Academic uh, that uh, Whosoever Will has been one of their best sellers wow. uh, since 2010. And in fact, I'll come back to my other two books on the atonement in, in a moment. But in fact, this book, Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique, mm -hmm. uh, B&H Academic came to me and to my co-editor, Steve Lemke, and asked us, would we consider producing a new book that would be in the same vein and trajectory of mm -hmm. Whosoever Will, because Whosoever Will had been so well received. Mm -hmm. And B&H said, we would like to expand the audience into the broader evangelical world, and we would like to ask you to have, uh, you know, you can have some of your guys who wrote uh, articles or chapters in Whosoever Will, but we'd like to have some other authors who yeah. are not Baptist to participate. Well, we were very fine with that. And so we uh, now have people involved in this who are not Baptist, uh, people yeah, like Ken that. Wilson, of course, who's yeah. in your uh, tradition. Yeah, and uh, of course, Ben Witherington, uh, and Brian Abishano and William Klein. Uh, of course, Roger Olson is a Baptist, uh, mm -hmm. and so is uh, Matthew Pinson, uh, and they're in the book. Uh, but then uh, you got a number of these people who are not uh, Baptist. Uh, they're in the broader evangelical world. And so the book is out. Now, I can tell you this. The book released August 1st, and it sold out. Uh, the first run sold out. Their warehouse was empty in 10 days. Wow. Well, that's why I get and my books on Kindle, so I guess. We're grateful for that. So it's already in its second printing. Wow. You know, here's a footnote to Whosoever Will. Uh, I have it on Kindle, and uh, I, I really love the book, but I, I searched it on Amazon just this morning, and it's not didn't appear anywhere on Amazon. So I don't know if I can tell you why. All right. The reason is B&H is discontinuing uh, Whosoever Will because they feel like that the new Calvinism book is whosoever will plus. Yeah. And well, so there's, there's nice I, to I have one step down for that. some people. 
you know, like me, maybe. Yeah. I would have preferred they not do that because there are a number of great articles in Whosoever Will that are not in the New Calvinism book, but they uh, they made the decision uh, to discontinue it since this new book that covers all the ground of Whosoever Will plus yeah. more is has now been released. Well, I found that the uh, Whosoever Will was at a very readable level for for many you know non scholars. So I hope it right. Means- Here's this that they'll maybe put that back out after they've sold their share of capital. Well, I'll make sure they hear that. I certainly <laughs> will. The interesting thing you ask about the impact, whosoever will made such an impact that the the Calvinists were not happy with mm. the publication of Whosoever Will. And two years later, they published a refutation of this book, mm. uh, an attempted refutation entitled Whomever He Wills. I saw that, but I haven't read it. Yeah, whomever he wills is kind hmm. of a blow by blow, try an attempted refutation of of uh, our book that Dr. Lemke and I co-edited, uh, and that that book, uh, who whomever he wills, taken of course directly out of Romans nine, yeah, uh, the terminology directly out of Romans nine, and that book is co-edited by Barrett and Nettles, and it's a multi-author book as well, and. Uh, uh, you so know how it sold? David Schrock, pardon? You know how it's sold? I do not. I don't know mm. whether it's sold well or not. I really don't. Uh, I have no clue. Uh, my my chapter in Whosoever Will, of course, was on limited atonement. Right. And in Whomever He Wills, the chapter written there was written by a graduate of Southern Seminary, finishing up his PhD at the time, who is a high Calvinist. He's currently a pastor named David Schrock. And mm-hmm. David attempted to critique my chapter. So in my book, The Extent of the Atonement, uh-huh. uh, there is a long section in there where I uh, take David Schrock's chapter and explain the problems and the errors in it. Um, and uh, one can one can read his chapter in Whomever He Wills. You can re- first read my chapter in Whosoever Will, yeah. then read Schrock's chapter in Whomever He Wills, critiquing me, mm-hmm. then read my critique of Schrock <laughs> in The Extent of the Atonement, and you'll get a good back and forth on the problems with limited atonement in that engagement. Okay. Well, that's good to know. <clears throat> did, did Have you found the discussion remaining friendly, or how, how are you engaging with these people? For the most part, it does remain friendly mm-hmm. uh, within the Baptist world or Southern Baptist world. My interlocutors there have all been friendly. Most of them are friends of mine. But it has uh, become a little political issue in the Southern Baptist. Con- well, it it has in the sense of the influence of Southern. And there there is clear evidence in some places that the Calvinists are attempting to force that agenda and push that agenda and marginalize and minimalize those who are really not Calvinist. There is some, some evidence to that. I think I'm living testimony of that based on what happened to me at Southwestern Seminary. One of the reasons why after 18 years of service at that school, including two deanships, hmm. the dean of the school of theology yeah. for 12 yeah. years and the dean of the school of preaching for four years. Uh, but the new administration came in and uh, the new administrator, the new president was a Calvinist, and he began to release a number of non-Calvinist faculty members and uh, hired mostly Calvinist faculty members. And he finally got around to me uh, this spring, and uh, so I was released. 
Now, one of the reasons I'm convinced, one of the reasons I was released is because of my views and commitment and my written, uh, my uh, record, written record uh, against aspects of Calvinism, critiquing it. I do think that played into my release. Uh, And certainly this new book, Calvinism, appeared the day after it appeared on August 1st. And I was released at Southwestern on July 31st. Yeah. And that's something. Well, you, yeah, they're going to definitely consider your writings, I'm sure. Um, you know, one thing that identifies high Calvinists is their view of election. And I find that in the free grace camp, that there's many different, uh, I, I've identified six different views of uh, election and trying to, it's almost like we're running from the idea and trying to explain it away. And so we've come up with six different views. Some of them are older views, like maybe corporate election, but there's right. some newer some newer views like well, Molinism is an older view too, but been revived. Right. Uh, so what, what do you think view of election is consistent with the gospel of grace? Well, I do not think unconditional election is consistent with bi- the biblical revelation. I do not believe unconditional election is taught in Scripture, uh, but what it there the doctrine of election is taught and the doctrine of predestination is taught, but not as defined by Calvinism. Mm-hmm. There are better definitions and better understandings, in my judgment, uh, including even though this is not my particular view, but the concept of election as essentially based on foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. which, of course, is a traditional Arminian understanding right. of election. Right. Uh, I think that is a valid viewpoint. Uh, it is, it's not my particular view, uh, but basically uh, Romans 8, 29 uh, and, and 1 Peter 1, 2 link election to foreknowledge. And Calvinists, of course, want to linguistically try to say that the word foreknowledge does not really mean what is its traditional understanding of its meaning that it means to forelove or foreordain. And of course, then you've got sort of a tautology here. You've got foreknowledge and election essentially meaning the same kind of thing. Uh, and the, the, the use of prohorizo when it occurs in the Greek new Testament doesn't support the Calvinistic understanding of election as individual election unto salvation. Mm-hmm. I think that, is not a biblical view, uh, not a good interpretation. So that view does not comport with a free grace view, or uh, in my my opinion, just doesn't comport biblically at all. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what where you are. So uh, uh, in terms of unconditional election, I think it's possible, but I'm not a fan of election based on foreknowledge. I think there are better understandings. My, my, I would say the two best ways to understand the concept of election would be corporate election, mm-hmm. which there are two good chapters on this topic in the New Calvinism mm-hmm. book. Election is, a, is understood corporately, and then there's a related, uh, it's related, it's not identical, but that Jesus is the elect one. And all who are in Christ are among the right. elect. Mm-hmm. That's that is a form of corporate election, uh, or a way of looking at corporate election. But then, as you said, there are even other views and other nuances uh, other than unconditional election. 
I like uh, uh, Richard Land's uh, chapter on election and how he explained it in Whosoever Will. I thought that was a very helpful yes. explanation. Right. But I've right. always encouraged that we have a lot of grace when we talk about election because it's a uh, God's uh, deterministic will and man's free will has been a discussion outside of Christianity forever. And now right. it's, and the Jews argued about it and the Christians argue about it. So we, we should show a little right. bit of grace in that situation. But yeah. Um, yeah. When it comes to Calvinism, we know that it can change the gospel message when it, uh, well, it changes it up front about the, with the definition of faith or necess necessity of turning from sins. And it changes it on the back end with the necessity of perseverance. Uh, how do you see Calvinism, high Calvinism, let's, let's say, affecting the Christian life in a practical way in, in one's ministry or, or our ministry of evangelism? Well, I do have a section on this and whosoever will at the end of my chapter on limited atonement. Uh, there is a section in there called uh, practical considerations. And in, under those, I outline what I consider to be uh, problems uh, and, and how they how it actually affects uh, the Christian life and evangelism and preaching. Um, the first that I deal with there on pages 94 and following is the problem of the diminishing of God's universal saving will. The Bible very clearly teaches God's universal saving will. Now, Orthodox Calvinism, right, affirms God's universal saving will, even though many Calvinists are lacking in understanding of their own history mm -hmm. and their own documents. But Orthodox Calvinism, if you read uh, the early Reformed guys, they all affirm God's universal saving will. And I point this out uh, in my section on that and also in the book on the extent of the atonement uh, as well. But high Calvinism, uh, uh, many within high Calvinism and all within hyper-Calvinism deny God's universal saving will. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and uh, that becomes a problem. In fact, one of the definitions or evidences of hyper-Calvinism, which Orthodox Calvinists reject. But one definition or one example of that is denying God's universal saving will. That makes if a you difference. deny God in... desires the salvation of everybody, uh, then you are in a hyper-Calvinist category at that point. And that, that would necessarily affect the presentation of the gospel, who we preach it to in fact we exactly. wouldn't know who to preach it to or who to offer it to exactly and that's why hyper calvinists say and we need to be distinctive here and nuanced hyper calvinists believe in preaching the gospel to everybody from the standpoint of the bare declaration of the facts of the gospel but what separates a hyper calvinist from an orthodox calvinist is hyper-Calvinists reject the notion of offering the gospel. Yeah, can't offer it. Because you can't offer. know who, who the elect are. Therefore, you don't you can't offer the gospel since, number one, you don't know who the elect are. And number two, you can't offer the gospel to the non-elect because they can't be saved anyway. There's no atonement for them. So the hyper-Calvinists are consistent with their theology at that point, mm -hmm. and they will say, Preach to all, offer to none. Oh, my goodness. And that, that of course, impacts preaching and obviously impacts evangelism oh, as well. Of 
Yeah. Yeah. And one because of my gripes with faith. Yeah, one of my gripes with Calvinism, it also offers no full assurance of salvation if we have to wait to the end of our lives to see if we persevered. Right. Um, so I see a and, lot of problems with the Christian right. life. Exactly. And, and Ken Keithley, Ken Keithley in his chapter and whosoever will, and his same his chapter, which has been rewritten, but on the same topic, Perseverance of the Saints in the New Calvinism book, makes that very point that you're making. It creates problems for the Christian life with respect to assurance and perseverance. Yeah. Amen. But uh as we close this discussion, um some of us will engage with those of Calvinistic thinking. Uh, how should we engage and what is the weakest link in their theological system or argumentation that we, we should, you know, in a friendly discourse, uh, engage them on what level, what points? Well, number one, the weakest link in their system is the limited atonement concept. The single most debated issue among the reformed is limited atonement. There was a huge debate on the extent of the atonement at Dort. Mm -hmm. Now, at Dort, you only had Calvinists there. You had no remonstrance. You had no Mm non-Calvinists. They were all Calvinists. And yet they debated among themselves uh, almost bitterly in some level at some points the extent of the atonement. And so you had a number of people that signed the canons of Dort who affirm an unlimited atonement who reject a limited atonement. It's even more pronounced at the Westminster Assembly 30 years later, because there you've got a third of the Westminster delegates who affirm unlimited atonement. Oh, really? And and who reject limited atonement. So from those days until now, 17th century, 400 years, 400 years, uh, the biggest debate among the reform themselves has been the extent of the atonement. That is their Achilles heel. So we and should talk about that. And that's what your books are yeah. all about. Right. That's what my books are all about, to give all of the material, ammunition, if you will, mm-hmm. to a, a moderate Calvinist or to a non-Calvinist to engage a Calvinist on the question of the extent of the atonement. That is their Achilles heel. Well, that's that's good. And and so now that will bring us to the subject of limited atonement, which I would like to discuss with you. So uh-huh. uh, well, thank you for talking about Calvinism with us. Sure. Yeah. Again, wasn't it good to hear from uh, David Allen about the different kinds of Calvinism and give us a better understanding of who they are, what they believe, and that they're not really a monolithic system as often portrayed. But there's a lot of disputes within Calvinism. And our encouragement to you is to uh, engage our Calvinistic friends in a friendly and way and a biblical way, because I think the Bible is really where their weakness is. They depend more on a theological system and its inferences than they do actual Bible exegesis and interpretation. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast with David Allen on uh, mostly on Calvinism, but we are going to, in part two, get deeper into the subject of limited atonement about which he has written extensively. So until then, we'll look forward to um, that time together, and we will see you. Thank you for listening. For more resources, 
or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.